Let us read in unison. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it giveth light to all in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. I have to get used to this. It magnifies my voice in a way that I'm not accustomed to. And the other day, someone was back in the back laughing hilariously at the flat notes that I was singing up here on the hymn. Uh, and I, so I've got, got to get it figured out how we can get it turned down. And then there is a student over in Howerton Hall who imitates me. And uh, I, this is very amusing to me because I used to imitate my professors in college. And now it's coming home to me. And when we, when we realize these things, it, it uh, makes us want to do better. And uh, last week I had someone who came to me, a good Swede, and wanted to tease me because I had told a joke about Swedes during the service. Uh, about this time each year for several years, I used to go out to preach in Kansas to the Missouri Synod Lutherans. And of course you have all of those people from the Scandinavian countries who are there. And uh, it's a lot of fun to go and to be with them. The Lutherans are tremendous Christians, and Dr. Oswald Hoffman is just one of the greatest storytellers I've ever heard in all my life. And we would go from church to church speaking, and there would be Swedes, and there would be Norwegians, and there would be Danes, and uh, Germans, and what have you. And uh, Ozzy's wife is a Swede, so he's always telling stories about them. And uh, he said that he was very well aware of the fact that when you tell a story to a Swede, he laughs three times. He laughs first when you tell the story, and then he laughs again when you explain the story. And then he laughs a third time when he understands the story. 
Now, German only laughs twice. That's when you tell the story and when you explain the story. You're right, he never quite understands the story. Now, the Englishman only laughs once, and that's when you tell the story. There's no use trying to explain it to him. And the American doesn't laugh at all. He just says, I've heard that one before. <laughs> now then, we are studying the Beatitudes. These are the attitudes that ought to be. In doing some of my research, I found that uh, in our great Declaration of Independence, that on June the 11th, 1776, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and Dr. Franklin and Roger Sherman and Robert Livingston were asked by the Continental Congress to prepare this Declaration of Independence. Jefferson is commonly regarded as the author because of his remarkable literary expressions. He worked in the house of a young German bricklayer in the city of Philadelphia, and he relied upon such books of knowledge as were about him, some of Aristotle, some of Cicero, Locke, and probably the Bible. He took a phrase from John Locke which spoke of the desirability of man's right to include life, liberty, and the ownership of property. And he struck through the ownership of property and in place of property, Jefferson wrote the pursuit of happiness. Now this of course is what most men and women are engaged in in life. It's the pursuit of happiness. We in our first lesson learned that the word happiness is not really as strong a word as we would like because it has to do too much with chance, with happenstance. That the word bliss or blessed uh, is a deeper, better word because it's not going to be dependent upon circumstances and upon the fickle changes that take place about us. But it's going to be a serenity of soul that it is ingrained deep down within us. We saw also that Jesus was speaking these blessed words, not just to anyone. Now, there were people out on the edge of the crowd listening. But when he went up to, in the mountain and he brought his disciples unto him and he opened his mouth and taught them, the disciples were those who had followed him. And you will understand that Jesus will we'll explain to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And these beatitudes are the attitudes for those who are under the king's rule, under his reign. The door, of course, to the kingdom. And in service of the Lord is to recognize our need of him. And so the first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We saw that the poor in spirit is not to be confused with poor-spirited, uh, not just people who amoebically blob around, but people uh, who do have spirit, but who understand their own limitations and who are willing to accept themselves under God and to make themselves available to God. They know their need of him. Then Jesus spoke the strange words, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And here we thought about what exists. We mourn, of course, for our own sins. Day after day, 
Each one of us is faced with things that we wish we could undo and do over and make them better because we didn't do right in the way we thought or reacted perhaps to someone else. So Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. This must also have to do with those who mourn over injustice in the world, and I'm sure it has to do with those who mourn because of the great sadness that sin brings when death strikes into a home and sickness and heartache and heartbreak comes. We know this because Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus when he saw Martha and when he saw Mary weeping and when the Jews round about him were weeping. He wept because in that cemetery he could see the devastation that sin had wrought and the heartache that comes when death intrudes. Jesus also, you know, we say that beatitude at almost every funeral. It begins with, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the word C-O-M is the first part of a Latin phrase that means with strength. He brings us into a fortification, like the uh, song that was so beautifully sung a moment ago, a fortress, uh, a part of the 46th Psalm, a refuge, into which we may go for strength and for comfort. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. When I think about tears, I think also of that blessed part of the book of Revelation that says that there shall be no more sorrow and no more pain and no more tears, for the former things are passed away. And that there is a verse in the Psalms that says God catches our tears in a bottle a metaphor that's used to tell us that he never allows one tear to fill your eye over what's truly broken your heart, but what he doesn't care and love you and want you to feel his love and his strength too. This is very precious. When you see one like Peter going out into the night bitterly weeping, and being pursued, I think, probably by the Apostle John, and later brought back into the fold when Jesus gives him those threefold questions, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me more than these? And the boasting one now was poor in spirit. The boasting one now mourns, and the boasting one receives comfort. Jesus accepts him back. He didn't say, because you fumbled the ball in that game, we'll never let you play again. And Jesus healed the mistakes and the sins which Peter had made. And he said, you're going to feed my sheep. You're going to tend my lambs. Last week, we looked very inadequately at the, uh, the third of the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We saw again that the word meek is often misunderstood because meek, meekness has nothing to do with weakness. Meek means power under control. You will remember we talked about a horse that would be broken so that he would be responsive to the rider. Or we speak about a great raging torrent of a river where the hydro uh, power is uh, channeled and harnessed so that it can produce electricity instead of uh, flooding a whole valley. Uh, we think of power under control. I'll never forget one of the great experiences I had in my life with power under control. 
years and years and years ago, when I was 16, I soloed in a Piper Cub airplane on a little dirt strip out in East Texas. And I'll never forget that because it was a very proud and also a very scary moment in my life. Uh, I just had about six or seven hours of instruction. I'd washed airplanes and done things like that. And an old boy back from the Air Force had taught me how to fly. And so uh, I'd bumped all over the runway like I had grasshopper gas in the plane or something that morning. And uh, I didn't think he would dare let me go up. And uh, so he got back, he was chomping on his cigar. He had a sign in there, no smoking, but he's chewing on a cigar. And he took the thing out of his mouth and he said, I'll take it around the field, I think you can make it. <laughs> and I thought, boy, I hope you know, <laughs> know whether I can make it, but I wasn't about to back out. I had too much pride to do that. So I checked the magnetos and got everything ready and lined it up with a runway and put the power to it and down we went. The first thing I knew, we were, I was airborne. And I looked and there was no one in the front seat. My instructor was gone. And I was in the airplane by myself flying. And I looked way down at the ground at little tiny cars and little bitty pools and houses and streets. And I thought, what on earth am I doing up here? <laughs> and then I had to try to recall what my instructor had told me before I left and so that I would come in and make the right kind of a landing. I prayed very earnestly, I can assure you. And when I did get over the landing strip, I landed and everything came out very fine. Some years later, uh, I went up to preach for the Air Force in Labrador. And uh, they have a, a kind thing that the military does of asking you if there's anything in keeping with your interest which you would like to do. And I've always been fascinated with these military jets, and so I asked if I could fly in an F-102. That's one of those delta-winged uh, high-altitude fighter interceptors that they have on the North American Air Defense Command that is supposed to go up and meet any Russian bombers that penetrate our defenses. And so they had to get clearance from Colorado Springs, and they did, and then they told me I could uh, go on this flight. And uh, so when we got on the flight and got about eight miles up in the air, the uh, pilot, uh, after he saw that I was uh, going to not get sick, uh, he said to me, would you like to fly it? And there were others flying with us, and we were supposed to be intercepting Russian bombers and all that. And I said, uh, yes, I would. And I remembered in the days that I flew a Piper Cub, if I wanted to go to the right, I just turned the stick to the right and depressed the right rudder and we went over like that. And so I took the stick and I give you my word, I almost just thought it. I just touched it to the right and we went whoom. Uh, uh, and and uh, my stomach was up around my ears and we had gone four miles down before I knew what had <laughs> happened. And I learned that that power has to be under very sophisticated control. Uh, you, you learn a lot about a, a machine like that. But it, it's, its meekness means that we are coachable. Meekness means that we are teachable. And all of our life long, we are still continuing uh, to learn. So meekness is not weakness, it is a disciplined spirit. It is a teachable, coachable spirit. It's power 
that is brought under the control of God. And it's important for us to remember that. Uh, you can think back about, my wife said, why didn't you mention some meek persons from the Bible? You know who, who the Bible calls the meekest man on all the earth? Moses in the Old Testament. And did you know that Moses got angry sometimes? He really did. <laughs> he got so mad he killed an Egyptian. And then he had to beat it out in the desert and stay for 40 years. And the Lord worked on him out there in the desert. I'm sure that he talked to a lot of sheep and looked at a lot of uh, sand dunes and felt a little bit uh, of the discipline that the Lord was putting into his heart during his training period of 40 years of being nobody after 40 years of being in the uh, Pharaoh's palace. And then, of course, after Moses had been told by God that he was to go and appear before Pharaoh and demand that the people of God should be let go, Moses had all those excuses. Uh, he said that he couldn't talk. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, you'll find that he does very well. Um, it's a little long. He, he can talk. And the Lord um, said, who made your mouth? Didn't I make your mouth? And so the Lord deals with Moses, and Moses goes back and demands that the people of God should be let go. And then you remember, once these people enter into an orgy with a golden calf, when Moses is up in the mountain of God receiving the Ten Commandments. And when Moses came down, this meekest man in all the earth was so infuriated with rage at the disreputable and blasphemous thing that was occurring, that he threw the tablets of the law down and broke them. He came down and demanded that the golden calf be ground into powder and put into water and that they were made to drink it. He was a very stern disciplinarian. So it does not rule out anger, but it means that our anger must be a controlled rage, that we should know what to be, to be angry at the right thing at the right time is the way one of the best commentators on this word puts it. And so then today we come very appropriately for the time in which we enter into the Thanksgiving season. We come to blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, I have the issue of the Presbyterian survey that is currently out, and there is a lead article on hunger by Senator Mark Hatfield. I remember a few years ago in Washington uh, getting a telephone call from Billy Graham asking me to come up to a room. He wanted me to meet someone. I went up there and there was this handsome young governor from Oregon. And uh, I was immediately attracted to him, a very earnest and devout Christian. And you could tell his faith in Jesus was for real and there was no uh, superficiality that is sometimes per, around politicians, but I was greatly impressed with him. Listen to his words. As we approach the tradition of thanksgiving and its celebrations, we are reminded that while we are fortunate enough to be able to reflect upon our abundance, at this moment literally hundreds of millions of our fellow human beings are faced with starvation. Experts tell us that an estimated 12,000 persons, most of them children, 
die each day from a want of food, and that two-thirds of all the deaths which occur each day can be traced to starvation or related diseases. And an even more shocking statistic is that 700 million people around the world are seriously malnourished. What can we, the people of God, say to this hungry world as we sit down to our Thanksgiving meals? When so many are suffering, can our individual efforts really make a difference? What does Thanksgiving have to do with the poor anyway? We are told that the earth has the capacity to feed its people, that there is no insurmountable physical barrier separating hungry people from food. The problem lies in our sinful attitude toward what we possess. Now this is a beatitude, the attitude that ought to be. If righteousness is to prevail in the world, and that would have to do with helping the hungry and the needy and those who are downtrodden, then there must be an inward hunger inside us for righteousness. And this is what Jesus is teaching us about. The crowd to whom Jesus addressed these Beatitudes would be people who, if they missed one day's wages, would go to bed hungry at night. Very few of us know what it is to really, really be hungry. This past year, because of heart surgery and because an attendant problem related to a stroke, I've had to learn a good bit about foods. And at the Mayo Clinic, I was taken into a room and sat down at a table where there were all sorts of dishes of foods that were made out of plastic. There was a doctor there and a, a, a clinic person, and they said to me, let's see what you would eat for breakfast. And then you would put the portion that you would eat. They wanted to know how much sugar you would put in your coffee, whether you would put salt on the eggs, whether you would have bacon, whether you would have this or that. And you picked all this stuff out so there'd be no guesswork about it. And then they wanted to know what you would have between that time in the morning and noon. What would you have in between? Would you take a soft drink? Would you buy any of the little crackers? Would you take any peanuts? What would you have then? Then you came to lunch, and they wanted to know what you would take for lunch, and you would take it off, and all the time they had their little calculator adding things up. And then when they finished, they wanted to know about the afternoon, and then they wanted to know about dinner. Then they wanted to know about what you would have before you went to bed, or whether you would get up at night and go to the refrigerator and take anything else. And then they pushed it all aside and said, now we're going to tell you what you can eat and what you can't eat and how much of it you can eat. They wanted a graphic demonstration of it. We live in a country where the fast food industry has become one of the great multi-billion dollar industries in America, where there are all sorts of fried chicken things and hamburger stands and pizza huts and everything else all around everywhere and people eat enormous quantities of food. And so uh, we have really forgotten what it's like to be really hungry. But Jesus knew what it was like to be hungry. He fasted 40 days and nights. It would do us good to fast sometimes. To fast just to know 
But he wants us to know that if we have that same inner intensity of gnawing feeling after righteousness, and righteousness and salvation are synonymous, then God is going to satisfy that need. Have you ever thought of the way that the outer man depends upon food and water and the inner man depends upon righteousness? The inner man has a sense of, of, of sight. Uh, Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, prays that the eyes of their understanding might be enlightened. In Mark, the Lord Jesus spoke of certain people and said of them, they have eyes, but they see not. And then in the book of Revelation, one church is told they anoint their eyes with eye salve that they might see. And so there is a physical analogy. We need, we need to see. There's spiritual hearing. How often have I heard Dr. Billy Graham in his great preaching say, as you listen to me, you have two sets of ears. You have your physical ears that are hearing the, the voice that speaks. You have spiritual ears that are hearing what the Spirit of God is saying. Are you listening for the Spirit of God to speak to you? Jesus said again and again, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. He said in John 10, Christ's sheep hear his voice and they follow him. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Immature Christians are called dull of hearing. They don't want to hear. They do not exercise their spiritual senses. And so we come from sight to hearing to a sense of taste. And in Psalm 34, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then Psalm 42, one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible as the heart that is a deer, as the deer panteth after the water brooks, so panteth, so thirsteth my soul for thee, O God. Do you feel that thirsty, that hungry about knowing God? In Ecclesiastes, we are told that he has placed eternity in our hearts. Augustine put it another way and said he has made us for ourselves and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. After Jesus had fed the hungry multitudes, they followed him where he went. He had a suspicion that they were following him just for the loaves and fishes alone. And so he said to them that they must remember that he was the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me, said Jesus, shall never hunger, and he shall never thirst. These are words that he gives us. So this means that there must be on our part to receive the blessing, the happiness of this beatitude, a hunger and a thirst, an intense desire after righteousness. I have a friend who's always wanted me to put something in the bulletin so that people could write down little things that they might wish to remember. I don't think I'll say that much that's worth remembering, but uh, here's one that I think is worth remembering. And it's simply this, that Christ is never a reality until he is a necessity. Christ is never a reality.
until he is a necessity. That's important for us to remember. Who is consciously Lord over your life? Who really controls it? We need to clarify our creed at this point, And we need to remember what he is saying. Jesus wants to create in us a deep hunger for God and a hunger for holiness. And it's this hunger that will change our lives. And it, would, it will control us. The big doctors up at the Mayo Clinic will tell you, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. And the same thing is true spiritually. If you feed your mind on the garbage that comes off television, then that's what you'll be spiritually. If that's the kind of appetite you have, then you're, you'll show it by the way that you talk, the jokes that you laugh at, the humor that exists. And you'll see what's happening to a great country already in a stage of advanced decline. This past week, I got a copy of the address made at Harvard by Solzhenitsyn. I read this out loud to myself. I went back over it again to see this man who is really a prophet and what he is saying to our country. How he talks to us about how we've lost our moral courage. How he speaks to us about what has happened to us in the cheap things that we take into our system because we have our much vaunted freedoms. Destructive and irresponsible freedom has been granted boundless space. Society appears to have little defense against the abyss of human decadence, such as, for example, the misuse of liberty for moral violence against young people. Motion pictures full of pornography, crime, and horror. It is considered to be part of freedom and theoretically counterbalanced by the young people's right not to look or not to accept. Life organized legalistically has thus shown its inability to defend itself against this corrosion of evil. When you try to do away with the moral system, and he speaks of this here, the Christian ethics upon which our laws were originally constructed, that came from Mount Sinai to the Magna Carta, and made their way into our society, there is a certain dependence upon an inner moral restraint. And he uses the word Christian in speaking of the cement which holds things together because there is a sense of responsibility. But we, he says, and I think quite rightly, are out of control. Are we hungering and thirsting after righteousness as we should? We need to think about these words of Solzhenitsyn again. Well, now, what about some of the people who have wasted what the Lord has given to them? What can be done? I had printed in the bulletin today under the title of the sermon, The Mind of Christ. You remember from Philippians, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, 
And then in another place in the Gospels, Jesus says, except you be converted and become as a little child. Those are his two models of humility. A loving father with a loving child enjoys a trustful confidence and relationship with that child. And so that child will learn to obey and to do good things and will grow up and guilelessly will accept and be taught. And that's the way we ought to be with our Heavenly Father. Someone said that God loved His Son so much, He wants all the other children born in the world to be just like Him. And that's a good thing. He wants us to be like Jesus. In Romans 8, He speaks of our being conformed into the image of Christ. So there too, a servant is one who is active in service. A child is one who is teachable and who trusts. And then I have said today, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Suppose someone is here and he says, well, my eyes are spiritually blind. I can't see this stuff that you're talking about at all. My ears are deaf and I can't hear. The real reality of the truth of Jesus Christ and of the world to come. I have no appetite for holy things. Where have you been feeding? Where have you been eating? There's a little member of our household whose name I will not call, who sometimes gets out of the car when he gets home in the afternoon from school and dashes into the kitchen and consumes a considerable quantity of chocolate chip cookies and a glass of milk. And then if supper is a little early, he is not hungry <laughs> because he's eaten. And if we eat other things, we fill it up in the wrong way. Now Jesus speaks of one father who had two sons. And the younger of them wanted his freedom. And so he said to the father, give me. And the father gave him his part of the inheritance. And he went away into a far country. And he wasted his substance in riotous living. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, the devil. He sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he feigned, he gladly would have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare. I will arise and go to my father. Now if there is a hunger in your heart for God. And you have come to your senses. You can accept what is offered here. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. Nothing in the world can satisfy like Jesus. And he beckons us to come to him. He wants us to feed upon that which he has to give to us. And, you know... 
I can remember so well when I was in college trying to wrestle with the business of whether or not I would go into the ministry. There was a little piece of doggerel poetry that came to me and it made a great impression on my life. I cut it out, put it in the back of my Bible. I read it in the testimony of a man who after graduating from Davidson College had gone on board ship to Europe to complete. It was then the custom for wealthier families to take a tour of Europe after they had graduated from school. But his life was empty, though he was rich. And on the ship back, some old minister was asked to speak, and he spoke about the rich young ruler who had something missing in his life and was hungry and thirsty for that which was missing and who came running to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. But the man turned and went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And this man thought he was just like that rich young ruler. But he wouldn't go away from Jesus. And he took Jesus Christ as his Savior on board that ship. When I met that man, which was a great privilege later, is a prominent businessman in Atlanta. He had copies of this little poem. I'd walked life's way with an easy tread, had followed where comforts and pleasures led, until one day in a quiet place, I met the master face to face. With station and rank and wealth for my goal, much thought for my body but none for my soul, I had entered to win in life's mad race when I met the master face to face. I had built my castles and reared them high. Their towers had pierced the blue of the sky. I had sworn to rule with an iron mace when I met my master face to face. The castles melted and vanished and in their place Naught else did I see but the master's face. And I cried aloud, O oh, make me meet to follow the steps of thy wounded feet. My thoughts are now for the souls of men. I lost my life to find it again. Ere since one day in a quiet place, I met the master face to face. If you're hungry, and what the world has given you does not satisfy. The Bible bids you to come without money and without price. You can come and take Christ, the bread of life, and feed upon him. You can accept him as your savior today. And that's my prayer for you. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and our guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.